who's excited about their week? This, this one coming up. Who's, who's a bit trepidatious? Who would like to know what trepidatious means? <laughs> Trepidai, yeah, that, that's, that's when you're trepidatious for several weeks. That's the plural. Am I, am I ringing down there? Because I'm sort of really loud in my own ears. I'm, I'm on do not disturb. Nobody can hear me. Last, who remembers what we... No, I won't ask that question. That's always a leading question, what we preached last week. But we talk, we're talking about building a life of community. And we talked last week about finding our way home, and about how we're called to actually live in community, to actually be in community not with one, just with one another, but with God as well. And so as we do that, the question arises, or at least it does in my mind, how do we actually conduct this interaction with God? How do we conduct this interaction with each other? Because I think one of the hurdles we face, no matter where we are in our faith journey, is actually how we interact with God and how we interact with others. Because I don't know about you, but being in a relationship with the God of the universe is a bit intimidating. Is, is, has anybody else thought of that? I mean, God is. He's God. You know, he has the smite button. You know, this, this, it, it can be a bit intimidating to sort of say that you, you, you're pals with God, but I don't know about you, but who, who knows that they're not really as holy as God would like? No, it's just me. Okay, um, moving on. Um, but similarly, the concept of finding a place in a faith community where the diversity of people can be extremely broad can also be fraught with awkwardness. Anybody? discover that. It's not always easy to find your place. So it's comforting that throughout the Bible, there's a, this concept uh, that God's way of connecting with his people is to prepare a table for us to sit down at with him and each other. The table is a comforting and familiar picture that we can all relate to from everyday life. Most of us, who owns a table? Who's renting a table? Who's borrowed a table? who has chairs around a table. And so we're, we're, all, we're all fairly familiar with the idea that a table is a great place for eating, unless you're keen on doing that on the floor. It's a great place for conversation. It's a great place for celebration. It's actually a really good place for conflict resolution. And in a broader sense, it's a great place for government. We're talking about coming to the negotiating table. It's where people sign agreements and peace treaties, and all of that sort of thing. They come to the table. It's a place of arbitration, where people come to discuss their differences. There's something that we don't do a lot, but is mentioned in the Old Testament. The table is actually a great place for sacrifice. The altar is usually a form of a table. It's also a great place for worship. These are things that we might not do these days with tables, but they're, they're uses that we are familiar with. And the interesting thing is we need to look at our own experience of the table as we invest, investigate the biblical significance of the table because that colours our perception. If all you've ever done as a table, at a table is eat, then every biblical reference you read about the table, you'll think, you'll think feast, food, eating. Now, that's understandable because a lot of biblical references are about feasting and food. So it's not entirely wrong, but there are other things that the Bible talks about the table as well. 
Psalm 25, Psalm 23, verse 5. It says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So we can see here that, that God is the one preparing the table. God wants to meet us. And here he's prepared to put a table even in the midst of our enemies. If we read Exodus 37 verse 10, it actually says, Then Belzalel made the table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches deep. He overlaid it with pure gold and ran a gold moulding around the edge. Pretty fancy table. Not, not the sort of table that you'd think, perhaps let's go and have dinner. Especially, I mean, if Vicky owned the table, you'd never eat off it. Because you wouldn't want to spoil the gold. Matthew 26, verse 19. This is the feast of the Passover. All the disciples and Jesus have come together. And it says, The disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. And we've got the, the parable of the, uh, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 22.10, where it says, The servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike, and the banquet hall was filled with guests. Now, it doesn't specifically mention a table there, but our, our idea of a banquet is always that there's at least one table involved there. So the good and the bad alike have come to the table. And these are just a few scriptures. But we can see from these examples that the, the idea of a table stems from God's desire out of his love to connect with his people. And so a table becomes very important. We can see from, from even just these scriptures, we, we can see that he will prepare a table anywhere in the midst of our enemies. He doesn't care where we are or what circumstances we're facing. He's always prepared to meet us across the table. Anyone is invited. Anyone can sit at the table. Matthew 22.10 said, The good and the bad alike are called to God's table. Jesus sits down with us. It's not us at the table waiting. Jesus sits down with us at the table. And we also discovered it's a place suitable for worship. The table that Belzalel is making in Exodus 37 is the table for inside the temple, which holds the showbread, which is the, the freshly baked bread, which is offered as a, as a sacrifice to God, fresh every day in the temple. So it's a place of sacrifice and it's a place of worship. So what's the purpose of this table? Is it just to hang out in God's presence? Is it to comfort us? Is it a place of safety? I can sort of think of it, you know, some Christians I think think of the table as it's like a game of tag, but you're safe when you're touching the table. That may be true. Is it a place to be fed? We've had all this talk about food. Do we just come to the table to be fed physically, perhaps spiritually, to actually get stuff from God so that He feeds us at the table? What do you think? I'd say yes, they're all true. But the table is actually really a place of transaction. It's actually what happens while we're at the table. And it's also a place of transition. We are not meant to hang out for the rest of our lives at the table. 
most of us like sitting at the table, especially as kids, because we know once we get up, you know what mum's going to say? Take your dishes to the sink. Put them in the dishwasher. Tidy up after yourself. And it's the same at this table. We hang out with God at the table so that we can carry his presence with us when we leave the table. We're comforted at the table to enable us to comfort others when we leave the table. We rest in the safe place of the table so that we have the strength to confront danger when we leave the table. We are fed at the table so that we can feed others when we leave the table. The transaction across the table is our invitation to put our faith in God. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. That's the transaction we're entering into. But guess what? If we take up the offer to trust God, guess what happens next? There will be a test. Who loves tests? Who's lying? <laughs> there is always a test. The quintessential couple who were with God were Adam and Eve. I don't know whether there was a table in the Garden of Eden, but they spent the cool of the evening walking in the garden with God. They could have sat down at a table, eaten with God. They had everything. And what did God do? He gave them a test. And they failed. Abraham and Sarah were promised by God a son. And they were tested immediately because the first thing that Sarah thought was, I'm 80. God is a funny guy. He really is. And bleh. Abraham failed because he thought, well, I think God's a serious guy, but this isn't going to work. So this Egyptian handmaiden, I've got Hagar. She looks fertile. Let's see if I can get her pregnant. Bleh. Fail. The good thing was God gave them a second chance. And Abraham was tested again with his son Isaac, and he passed. But not everybody fails. Moses and the Israelites, they come up to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God's rescued them from the Egyptians, and he wants to meet them all. And some of them, it says in Exodus 24:17 to the uh, uh, sorry, 24:11. And though these nobles of Israel gazed upon God, he did not destroy them. In fact, they ate a covenant meal, eating and drinking in his presence. So he set forth a table, and they ate and drank with God. And then they were tested. Only Ma Moses climbed the mountain. Verse 17 says, To the Israelites at the foot of the mountain, the glory of the Lord appeared at the summit like a consuming fire. Then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And we know from the rest of the story that Moses passed the test. He actually went through the fire to see God. But the rest of them said, No, that's, that's not for us. 
We're going to go down and wait for you, and we're going to set ourselves aside for God, and uh, we're going to be his holy people. On the other hand, why don't we make a golden calf? <laughs> and so Moses passes. rest of the Israelites, meh, fail. In the New Testament, we see the disciples walking with Jesus. They sit down at a table with him at Passover. And this, this is what gets here. He tells them there's going to be a test. He tells them what the test is going to be. And he tells them the answers. I mean, what sort of cheating is that? And guess what? They fail. <laughs> they fall victim to the fire of his crucifixion. But this, you see, this is where everything changes for them and everything has changed for us. The redemptive power of Jesus' resurrection pays for their failure just as it pays for ours and they get to take the test again. And this time most of them pass and what we call the church is born out of that. Finally, look at the apostle Paul. As Saul, he thought he was doing God's work. He thought he was close with God, you know, tight. But it took fire from heaven on the road to Damascus to open his eyes, literally after blinding him. <laughs> and as Paul, he passed the test to become one of Jesus' greatest advocates. Can you see a pattern anywhere here? If we are going to be the beneficiaries of God's promises, he wants to know we really trust him. The Bible repeatedly refers to God testing our faith with fire. The fire will either consume us, or cleanse us. Look at the examples I gave you. Adam and Eve. They got banished from Eden. Guess what happened when, if they turned to go back into Eden? What did they face? Seraphim with flaming swords. They would have had to... And the words... I don't know whether you think... Seraphim and cherubim. That, that, in most paintings you see of them, they're baby-faced little creatures with tiny wings fluttering around. Seraphim means beings of fire. And so they knew they couldn't get back because they knew the fire would destroy them. Moses went up the mountain through that fire that the Israelites saw from the bottom of the mountain. He had to go through that fire to meet God. And he passed the test. Paul was struck down with that light from heaven on the road to Damascus. Our faith will be tested by fire. But there's good news in that that I'll tell you about in a moment. Genesis, and, and I think this, this, this story really encapsulates where we are as people and, and how God deals with us. Genesis 22 verse 1 has this, starts with this strange, fave, uh, strange line. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Now, why would God do that? I mean, he has... We know from a previous verse that God has promised that Abraham will have a son and he will be the father of many nations. But if we look back at that story, we saw that he was promised a son. But then he took Hagar, who had Ishmael. So he, he did it his way. Not only that, he, he and Sarah both treated Hagar very poorly, and actually ended up banishing them into the desert to die. Very Christian of them. So 
Abraham not only had warped God's promise, he'd actually done it in a way which was very bad. He had treated his servant, the Egyptian immigrant, if you like, in his country, in the worst possible way. God was not happy. But God still gave them Isaac. So God didn't renege on his promise. But then he tested Abraham's faith. Because he said to Abraham, take your son, get some firewood, and offer him to me as a sacrifice. Now imagine what Abraham was thinking. Because I can't. And he took him up there. And at the final moment, we know God said, no, hold don't do it, you'll find a ram in the thicket. And what did Abraham have to do to pass the test? He had to build a fire. He had to go the ram in his place had to go through the fire as a sacrifice. And we are often the same as Abraham. We hear God's promise. We, not, we preach, we read about God's promises, we pray God's promises. And so we hear them, and guess what? We hear them and we believe God's promises. And then we hope God's promises come to pass. And then we help God's promises come to pass. And we hijack God's promises in our own strength, in our own understanding, which is not God fulfilling his promises. And so the great thing is that even if we stuff up, we can come back to the table. The price Jesus paid through his death and resurrection means that unlike Adam and Eve, failing the test doesn't mean that we're consumed by the fire. We get to take the test again. So anyone can come to the table. The table is a place of transition. And when we get up from the table, we can go in two directions. We can either follow Jesus or we can not follow Jesus. The great thing is it doesn't matter which direction we take, we can always come back to the table. If we put our faith in Jesus, there will always be a test. That's why we want to have other people of faith at the table to help us in the test. Cheating is not only allowed, it is encouraged. God wants us to pass the test. That's why he puts us in community. That's why he has a table set before us to sit at, not to compete against one another, not to work out how to get things done, but to support one another as we all go through the tests that come our way. In a moment... I'm going to ask us all to stand. I'm actually, if I can get the band to come up, that would be great. And I want us to sing in celebration about how we can be, how every breath that we take can be a celebration of our relationship with God. But we, before we do that, I just want to ask one question. Will you put your faith in Jesus today and sit at the table that he has prepared for you? Because that's what it is. 
It's a table that he set that anyone can come to. You don't have to qualify to sit at the table. But there's a transaction that happens between you and God. And that transaction may result in you taking a step back and saying, no, that's not for me. But if you catch hold of the promises of God, of the relationship that Jesus promises at that table, then it's an invitation to put your trust in Almighty God to lead your life. And that takes the first step of saying, yes, okay, I'm going I'm to take that step. I'm going to invite Jesus into my life. I'm going to take that offer of his promises. I'm going to stand in faith. I'm going to pass the test. And I'm going to follow him. If you're here this morning and you've never taken that step of accepting the promises of God, or if you have, but you know you've stepped away from that table and you're not following Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity after the service to actually pray that prayer. I'm going to be here for 10, 15 minutes at the end of the service. I would love to pray with you to actually ask Jesus into your life to start that conversation, to start that interaction, to start that relationship. So if you're here this morning and you feel that God's speaking to you, it's time for you to take that step to enter into a relationship that is going to change your will, then can I encourage you, do that this morning. Speak to me after the service. But right now I want us all to stand.